Good morning. Is everybody warm? Well, it's a, it is a wonderful day today. We have um, had two services now where we have installed our leadership for 2024 and forward, and um, we will look, we look forward to the baptism of Julia this morning, and this is just a, it's a great day in the life of the church, and to be able to celebrate this with you and to praise God with you is, is a wonderful, wonderful and powerful uh, reminder that God is with us. God is with us, no matter how cold it is outside or no matter how hot it is outside. No matter how dark it is outside or how bright it is. God is with us. And God is with us in ways that transcends our understanding, our capacity to understand. And that's part of what this series that we have been addressing since Christmas is about this season of epiphany that uh, offers revelations about God, that God reveals God's self in mysterious ways and invites us to understand who God is and primarily through the life and death and resurrection of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been talking about. I, I love the way that um, a wonderful and um, gifted theologian his name is Howard Thurman, who um, died in the 1980s, but was a powerful voice um, of Christian theology and the civil rights movement in our country. He, he talks about the Christmas season and epiphany in this way. He says, when, when the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, and to bring peace among the people, to make music in the heart. It's a powerful way for us to begin to grasp and grapple with this whole notion of epiphany, these revelations, divine revelations about the God's self. And as we continue through this, I invite us to hear this brief reading from the Gospel of Mark. This is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Here in this passage, we're going to hear the calling of the disciples, that Jesus calls them these first disciples. Beginning in verse 14, Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. 
In this gospel reading, we have this um, really a, a brief account of Jesus calling the first four disciples. And that word immediate is so prominent in this passage. Jesus calls the first two and immediately they follow him. Immediately Jesus calls the next two and they drop everything in their boat and they follow Jesus. Something about this notion of call and response, this notion that Jesus comes, that God call, comes through Jesus Christ and he calls people for certain tasks to follow. And sometimes they do that immediately. And sometimes they're, well, they act more human, more like me. And they run the other direction. Or they pause, they hesitate, they second guess, they, they weigh the, the merits, the risk. Jonah is a wonderful story about just such a call. Jonah, of the son of Amittai, is first mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. And at this time, in 2 Kings, in this story of, of, the, of the kingdoms, the divided kingdoms that we find in Kings, this is during the time of King Jeroboam II. Now, King Jeroboam II uh, reigned for about 41 years, ending in about 741. And this is when Jonah, the son of Amittai, and also the prophet Amos, were living and working in the northern kingdom in Israel. Now at this time, the superpower of the day was Assyria. Now Assyria had phases of, of, of expansion and, and um, kind of retraction in its, in its empire, in the legacy, its history. And during the time of King Jeroboam II was one of these seasons, one of these phases, if you will, when the kingdom of, of Assyria was kind of withdrawing. They had some internal problems, some conflicts, and they were kind of withdrawing their, their military and their political power from different parts of the regions to kind of, kind of bring it in and manage it. It had gotten too big, too unwieldy, and so they began to withdraw. And that's when King Jeroboam II began to expand, flexed his muscle. The, the, the bully in the neighborhood kind of back, went back home a little bit, moved away, and so he can flex his muscle a little bit and, and take over some geography, reclaim some land, expand his policies and politics, his economies. And, and that's what was happening. Under Jeroboam, Israel, this northern kingdom, really began to become prosperous. This was a, this was a, a season for the, for the northern kingdom to expand. Now, that expansion was really good news for a small number of people. The king, his court, his good friends, and his allies. But that expansion was on the backs of an expanding class of servants and slaves. And that's who Amos was concerned with. That's who the prophet Jonah in 2 Kings was concerned with. <clears throat> is how is all this expansion, all this prosperity, this growth, how is it benefiting the servant and the slave, those whom you are crawling over, stepping on, stepping over to grow your kingdom, 
This was the prophetic word from Amos and from Jonah. Now we have to fast forward about 40 years to understand that Assyria reaches another phase where it begins to rebuild, begins to, where they begin to reclaim uh, property, geography, policies, kingdoms. And in that expansion, in 721, Israel falls to Assyria. Assyria moves, continues to move and is at the borders of Judah and Jerusalem. They don't cross them, but they're there. Israel, the northern kingdom, is sacked. The leadership, the, all those allies of the king, the court, they're exiled. They're scattered all over the Assyrian Empire. It's not until almost another 60 years that Nineveh becomes the capital of this huge, powerful nation. And that's probably the time that we're concerned with. That the book of Jonah is concerned with. Now the book of Jonah is different from the other um, prophetic books. The other prophetic books that we have like in Jeremiah and Isaiah, Isaiah, um, name them, Habakkuk, on and on. All those books are concerned with oracles and writings, sayings of, of the prophets. This particular book, Jonah, doesn't have much of that. The book of Jonah is a story, a narrative of this prophet. It kind of tells the story of, of, of Jonah's call to go to Nineveh. His, what, what, when you think about Jonah, what do you think about? Go ahead, what do you think about? A whale. What else? Anything else? Is that what you remember about the story of Jonah? What's that? A lack of desire to do what God called him to do. Now remember, Nineveh is the prominent city of the Assyrian Empire, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, this same empire that had conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, the same empire that exiled Jonah's family and his friends, had killed a number of the residents of, of Israel and all the surrounding nations. And, and God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I got a job for you. I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to tell Nineveh that I'm going to bring divine judgment upon them for their evil and their sins. What does Jonah do? He ran. He ran to the coast, hopped on a boat, and went the opposite direction from Nineveh. He was going to Tarshish. I'm going to get as far away and put as much of this world between me and Nineveh as I can. I'm going to put as much, much room between me and God as I can. I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't like Nineveh. I don't like the people who live there. I don't like what they do. I don't like what they say. I don't like the way they live, the way they look. I don't like them. And as far as I'm concerned, God can take them off the face of the earth. You know, as a Florida State fan growing up, you know that about me. Don't hold it too, too, too much against me. 
But growing up, we, I would go to these games. We had season tickets, and, and I would go to the Florida game. And, 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 and more times, often than not, Florida would beat Florida State. And, and I remember as a child, I would go to our little, it was a rinky-dink stadium. It was Doug Campbell Stadium. It was like an erector set. It was just not, it wasn't attractive. It wasn't good. And, and Florida would come to town, and they would just lay waste to Florida State. And I remember sitting here, you cheering the team on. This is the home team. This is the team I'm pulling for. I got my guard and goal on. I'm eating my hot dogs. I'm, I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden, the end of the game's over, and we're done. We're cooked. Florida's marching out down the stand, going down the ramps, singing their song. It's great to hate Florida State. <laughs> this is my home. You don't come in my house and tell me how much you hate me. You do if you win. Now think about poor Jonah. The Syrians have come into his home, into his stadium. They have laid waste to Israel, to the capital city. His team, his army, his people, they're done, they're cooked. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, these people that you hate, and give them a prophetic word. Give them a warning that in 40 days, it's over. So as we talked about, he hops, hops the ship, he gets out on the water, what happens? A storm comes, begins to toss that little boat to and fro, up and down. The sailors, who were just hapless men about their work, began to question and pray to their gods, what's happening? Why is this happening to us? Well, Jonah wakes up from his sleep, and he knows full well what's happened. He, he's run from God, and God is calling him back. And he tells him, just throw me overboard, and you'll be safe. I'm good as dead anyway. No reason for all of us to go. It's pretty brave on his part, right? So they throw him overboard. Maybe that's brave on their part. I don't know. But the sea's calm. The storm eases. And now we find Jonah where? In the belly of a fish. He already knew he was gone for. Now he's done. Now can you imagine if that's your mindset? That you're already done, you're cooked, you're over, you're dead. I'm in the belly of a fish. What worse way is there to go? But you know, Frederick Beekner talks about this episode and he says, like curdled milk, the fish spewed Jonah out of his mouth and onto the beach. So not, was it bad enough that you were in a storm, you were thrown overboard, you are swallowed by a fish, now you're regurgitated like curdled milk. And you're on a beach where, where you can get up and walk. Walk to where? Nineveh. And when he's on that beach, God comes to him a second time and says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And that's exactly what he does. As he's making his way to Nineveh, we're told that, that the Nineveh is so big that it takes three days to walk across the, the, the stretches of Nineveh. Three, think about three days' walk. 
to get across from side to side. How big is that? I had to look it up. I don't know how big that is. I would never walk three days. It's about 90 miles breadth. That's bigger than Los Angeles. That's, that's a big city. That's an incredibly large city. I, I, I find it hard to believe that a town in the, in the 600 B.C. would be larger than Los Angeles. So I had to look it up. How big is that site? Well, archaeology says it's about 750,000 acres. That may not be 90 miles, but it's a lot. That's a big place. And that's the point. This is a big place with a lot of people. Three days to get across. And so we have Jonah. He enters the city. He begins to proclaim the prophetic word that judgment is coming in 40 days. If you don't get things right, Nineveh, if you don't get it right, God's coming in 40 days and it's over for you. He didn't want to say that. We're told in one day, he gets a third of the way through the city and the people begin to say, you know what? Where he's right. He's completely right. We've got this all wrong. We have, we have committed evils against, against people. We have against evils against ourselves. Evils against God. And they begin to repent. They put sackcloth on. Their animals are wearing sackcloth. Every living being in that town is ready to turn around, to go turn to God. Let's get this thing right. And so what does God do? 40 days. King hears about it. And now everybody's wearing sackcloth, turning to God, trying to get it right. But God doesn't destroy the city. If you look at chapter 4 of Jonah, we find the young prophet out under a tree, pouting, saying to himself, I knew that's what you would do, God. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to go. That's why I went to Tarshish. I'd much rather say uh, friendly, hard words to people in Tarshish than in Nineveh. I'm okay with you saving Tarshish. I didn't want you to save Nineveh. They've destroyed my country, killed my family, my friends, my neighbors. They've scattered us. They've completely wrecked my home. I knew you were going to do this. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, says so much. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about the mercy I'm going to show 120,000 people? It's hard for us to kind of get our head around Jonah's story when it's so far away. We haven't had that kind of experience of losing everything to some oppressor. And to have anger and hatred towards some oppressor. Because we are oppressed. We're the victim. 
but it doesn't take us long in our history to find ourselves the oppressed, to find ourselves the oppressor. I was reading a, a book, I, I love, I've read it a couple of times, it's called um, I Left My Heart and Wounded Knee, and it's the story of the American natives and the, their, their struggles with the U.S. expansion across the West. And as, I, as you read that, it's almost like reading the book of Judges, where every episode and every decade throughout the expansion of the United States, we find broken promises, treaties broken, and a spiral of violence and conflict over and over and over again. Where the expansion of the United States and the policy of the United States began to push people, native people, into far, far further reaches, into corners. And so what would it look like for the oppressed to come to the oppressor and say a prophetic word? To speak truth to power. I found a great example in, in, from 1879 from Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce. In his speech, he said, I have heard talk and talk, but nothing is done. Good words do not last long unless they amount to something. Words do not pay for my dead people. They do not pay for my country, now overrun by white men. Good words will not get my people at home where they can live in peace and take care of themselves. I am tired of talk that comes to nothing. It makes my heart sick when I remember all the broken promises. If the white man wants to live in peace with the Indian, he can live in peace. There need be no trouble. Treat all men alike. Give them the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. All men were made by the, the same great spirit chief. They are all brothers. The earth is the mother of all people, and all people should have equal rights upon it. You might as well expect the rivers to run backward as that any man who was born a free man should be contented when pinned up and denied liberty to go where he pleases. When I think of our condition, my heart is heavy. I see men of my race treated as outlaws and driven from country to country or shot down like animals. I know that my race must change. We cannot hold our own with the white men as we are. We only ask an even chance to live as other men live. Let me be a free man, free to travel, free to stop, free to work, free to trade where I choose, free to choose my own teachers, free to follow the religion of my fathers, free to think and talk and act for myself. And I will obey every law or submit to the penalty. That's what it looks like for Jonah to travel to the seat of power and oppression and to complain and to make a prophetic call to change. And that's the epiphany, the revelation today. As we read the story of Jonah, the epiphany is that God's understanding, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's grace and love for all humanity breaks any created barrier or boundary that we create. Jonah did not want his enemy to receive God's compassion. They didn't deserve it. They didn't merit it. But God's mercy 
by the grace, divine grace, stretches beyond our comprehension, our capacity to know, maybe even our capacity to offer mercy. So maybe that's what we should walk away with. If there's one really important message in the story of Jonah, it's that God's mercy and love and grace is not just for me. It's not just for us. It's for you. It's for them. It's for all the others in the world. And for that, we give thanks. And it's that understanding that understanding of love and grace for each and every one of us that allows us to walk to the baptismal font, to receive the waters of baptism, to knowing that God's grace is for the one receiving it and for those who are watching. And I invite us now to celebrate Julia's baptism as we watch God work in and through her life and through ours. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.